Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Well Projects Leadership Exchange podcast. The Well Projects Leadership Exchange is a series that connects thought leaders in the women and HIV community to explore one another's work, activism, and personal experiences. This series will bring together cis and trans women and others who uplift women's voices across the HIV community in dialogue. On today's episode, the Wall Project's Community Advisory Board member, Sierra C.C. Colvin, and WRI member and sociologist, Dr. Celeste Watkins-Hayes, discuss Black women and HIV, their resilience, and the importance of ensuring they have the opportunity to thrive. My name is Sierra C.C. Coven, and I'm from Philadelphia. I'm a member of the CAB, Pro- the CAB for the What Project, and it's such an honor to get a chance to interview you, and if you would like to take this moment to introduce yourself. Sure. Thank you, Cece. Hello, everyone. I am Dr. Celeste Watkins-Hayes. I am a sociologist and scholar of African-American studies and public policy as well. Um, I'm currently on the faculty of Northwestern University, but I am heading to the University of Michigan um, September 1. So, and I have been involved in HIV research for over 15 years, documenting the experiences of women living with HIV and the larger um, HIV safety net. Wow, 15 years, that's a long time. So, what made you want to become a sociologist and like what was that like for you as a black woman? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I went to Spelman College um, in Atlanta and when I arrived at Spelman, I already was pretty passionate about social justice issues. I was raised in a family and in a community that was thinking about inequality as it relates to race, um, particularly racial inequality and economic inequality. So I already had a fire in the belly around um, issues of inequality and injustice. And I developed a sense pretty uh, pretty early on in my life realizing how our experiences are largely shaped by where we come from and what resources we have and what what resources we have access to and what opportunities we have access to and that those things are not evenly and fairly distributed so when i got to spelman and started taking sociology classes finally there was a language to talk about the things that i was observing so i couldn't necessarily describe Um, exactly what I saw happening and why I knew it was wrong, but I knew that it was wrong. And sociology provided the language to be able to talk about issues of inequality. It provided the framework. It it provided the, the theoretical understanding of things. And it put me in community with other sociologists who were thinking about the same sets of issues. So for me, it became clear that um, this was to be this would be such a good field to go into in terms of being able to develop and understand why my understanding of why the world operates the way that it does. Yes, and I've been living with HIV for twelve years, mm-hmm. and I believe that's why your 
presentation, like it resonated so much because it was what I didn't have the words to say. Like I live in this, I see this, but like what on like a scholarly level, like what's going on there? And you were, I was like, yes, yes, this was me the whole time at the presentation. And like when we got to, I contracted HIV when I was living in the South. And when we got to the part of, you know, like, I'm like, yes, because in school they only taught sex ed, you know, good touch, bad touch, you know, you know, these are hurt, these pictures, this is what it looks like. But HIV was never on my radar. And for you to put that into words, I was like, yes. And so I could definitely sense all of what you just said. So what would you say to any other young Black woman that is thinking about becoming a a sociologist? Like, do you have any advice? Yeah, and the cool thing is, the great thing about sociology is that you don't necessarily have to have a PhD in sociology to consume and read sociological literature, to be able to use the ideas and frameworks, to be able to operationalize them and teach them and um, use the information. So for some of us, the route is gonna be a more traditional route where we're gonna you know, go to college, go to graduate school, get a PhD, Um, become a professor. But the beauty of sociology as a discipline is that we can all be sociologists because really it is just having a framework and a willingness to understand the social world and a hunger to understand the social world. So we can all do readings, we can participate in discussions, we can teach, we can be in conversation with people. And, you know, one of the the best examples for my talk of the way that a a scholarly term moves in between these two worlds is a term like intersectionality. So Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term, is a legal scholar and deals with all these very complicated theoretical frameworks and the law. And I have no intention to go to law school, but her term intersectionality resonated with me. And what we've seen with that term is how it's now moving in activist circles, how it's moving in scholarly circles, how it's moving in public policy conversations. And part of it is because of the history of intersectionality. You know, Crenshaw was talking about something that she noticed among Black women activists in terms of their ability to talk about race and class and gender all at the same time. So the activist roots were kind of baked into the cake in the term, but that term travels all over the place and we all become better thinkers um, being able to, to use it. So the first thing that I would say for people who are interested in developing their depth of knowledge and understanding in, you know, legal studies or sociology is, you know, really start to pay attention to the writers who you think are perfectly capturing what it is that you care about. And now there's so much great work out there, not just by sociologists, but historians and, you know, religious scholars and all kinds of folks from Kimberly Crenshaw, Eddie Glau, Melissa Harris Perry. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of folks working who are writing in accessible ways so that all of us can be scholars, all of us can be sociologists, all of us can have access to this knowledge, all of us can be historians and use that in whatever form our work takes, whether it's political activism, whether it's um, you know working as a service provider somewhere, 
you know, the tools are now out there. And the beauty of technology is that so many people who operate in the academic world have Twitter accounts and, you know, are doing talks that can be shown on YouTube. So our ideas are more widely available than probably they've ever been. And with that, it means that all of us can, um, can develop that knowledge. Yes. And I'm so grateful for people like you. <laughs> so you talked about it a little bit. It is 2020, but you wrote a book mm -hmm. and I'm interested to know, like, what made you focus your research, like with black women? Like why like them? Yeah, that's a great question. So certainly being at, um, at Spelman, it really um, put at the center my experience as a woman and really understanding how gender shapes our experiences. Um, and then when I got to graduate school, I was doing this study. I was a research assistant. Um, so basically a faculty member had hired me to do some interviews with women. And these were low-income women, um, low-income Black women. And um, I was trying to understand, you know, how they were making ends meet in terms of their economic, what we call economic survival strategies, was really about trying to understand how people make ends meet. Because the idea is that if we can understand that, we can better inform public policy. So one of the women that I talked to um, happened to be living with HIV. And um, what struck me is how her networks were different from the other women. She had um, relationships in the HIV community. She had case management. She had friends. She had a support group. She had, you know, all of these other kind of supports that were helping her make her way in the world that were very different from um, the other women that I was talking to. So the seed was planted of, oh, this is interesting. And then I started to hear about the statistics on HIV and Black women. And what we find, unfortunately, with a lot of social dynamics, whether it's incarceration, whether it's HIV, whether it's, you know, employment, Black women often have some of the most disturbing statistics. Um, but we are also some of the most brilliant, energetic, beautiful, and compassionate people to ever walk this earth and creative. So for me, that's always been this weird contradiction of, you know, I went to a college for black women. I have black women all in my life. I see UCC and I see so many other women who have such talents and gifts and skills and nevertheless, we still see these statistics. So the gap that I see between what I see and what we know to be in the world in terms of the beauty of Black women and the realities of the statistics in terms of health and education and um, income, the gap there is about opportunity and the gap there is about resources. So my job as a scholar is to figure out what's happening in that gap. What is in, what's operating? Unpack the, open the black box to figure out um, what's happening to make things fly the way that they're flying. Um, so for me, what I really appreciate about being able to do this work is being able to hear a story like the woman in Boston who talked to me about her networks and then to hear the statistics about black women and to figure out like what's happening there? What is this in the middle? 
in terms of why black women are finding themselves disproportionately at risk. And once they, and if they do find out that they're living with HIV, what's happening in terms of their access to resources, their access to opportunities, and what are the barriers? And ultimately for me, it's about, yes, the hardcore policy conversation of what could we be doing better for healthcare, for services, et cetera. But it's also about how do we help women heal? Because for people to have this much in terms of beauty and creativity and passion and brilliance and to see it continually pushed and squelched, that's traumatic for people. And um, part of what I see my work doing is to help women through that trauma as well. So yes, I want to talk to policymakers about here's what we, we could be doing as it relates to healthcare and services and all that's important. And I've done all these interviews and here are the statistics and I can talk to policymakers in that way. But what I really see myself doing is telling black women what I've heard and giving their stories back to them and doing it in a way that is um, empowering, enriching, healing, and helps women to hear their stories and to realize how much they've overcome and um, how much um, they still have to offer the world when they're given the opportunity to do so. So one of the things that I'm hoping that my work is doing is inspiring in addition to informing. Thank you, because we most definitely need that, like the opportunity. Um, this was my first AIDS, um, International AIDS Conference. Mm -hmm. I'm fairly new to advocacy. And it's just always been so interesting to me that there are not as many conversations as I thought that should be had based around women. Mm -hmm. Like we, um, I didn't even think that I was really at risk for HIV because those weren't the messages that I was receiving, you know, in the space that I was. And then 12 years later to still see that we are, you know, not having a conversation is at least as much as I think that we should. Mm -hmm. um, that was, that was very, very <laughs> obvious at the conference as well. Yeah. Um, why do you think that that is? Yeah, that's a really good question, Cece, because, you know, women account for, you know, half the, the HIV cases globally. And um, one of the things that I think is um, because of the initial framing of HIV as an illness that was disproportionately affecting men, at least in kind of industrialized country, highly industrialized countries like the United States, um, I think it got framed that way globally from the outset in a way that we're constantly pushing back on, right? We know that, yes, it is the case that um, gay bisexual men or MSM are disproportionately represented amongst the HIV cases, not just in the US, but globally, but they're not the only population that's affected. So we've been constantly trying to kind of reshape that you know those early narratives that still are very present and then not only the narratives the infrastructure that follow the narratives really got set up to really focus on um men 
And part of that was through the activism of men and the work that they were doing to kind of build an infrastructure. But women were always present, whether they were fighting on behalf of, of men or whether they were fighting for them, themselves, they have always been present. Their activism isn't always, and I write about this in my book, isn't always as visible in quite the same ways. And I talk about how women in the early years were afraid of losing custody of their children if they came out um, about their HIV status. They were worried about being deemed unfit mothers. They were worried about the consequences that this would have on their children. They were worried, even you know, whether they had children or not, of being deemed unlovable or unclean or um, promiscuous. All of those things that we know have been used to attack women really since the dawn of time. So in a lot of ways, so. The idea that, you know, it, it always takes courage to be an HIV activist, but women had a, a different set of dynamics to navigate. So the narrative, the infrastructure that was being developed often didn't happen as visibly um, as it happened for the men. And that's something that we're still trying to push back on. We're still trying to be visible. We're still trying to be present. We're still trying to be accounted for. We're still trying to be... Um, at the leadership and at the helm of the conversation. And that is an ongoing struggle. And I think, you know, there are a couple of things that we can do to address that. Number one, you know, we've got to be in the leadership. And, you know, Cece, that's why I'm so excited for the work that you're doing in that you have your own personal story, but what's so beautiful about what you're doing is that you're now thinking about how do I move the personal to the political, right? How do I think about using what I've learned um, and using my experiences and using my kind of um, my development as a sociologist to get channeled into this larger HIV infrastructure to position yourself and to position women like you that you're allies with to, you know, run for those leadership positions, go into those meetings, take up space, um, be willing to put your ideas forward and to not, to insist on not being so intimidated that we get intimidated into silence. And um, because with being intimidated into silence, we get, in, we get intimidated into being absent, right? And not being counted. Um, so what you are doing is so powerful and I never want you to, you know, I never want women to underestimate the power of taking those personal experiences and using them to push for a stronger political agenda. Because the reality is privileged white men do that all the time. <laughs> they take what's personal to them, they take what's important to them, and they make it political. The difference is the rest of the world therefore affirms it as the way it should be, right? Mm -hmm. It's just understood and taken for granted that like what, what's good for them, it must be good for everybody else. Not so, right? Mm -hmm. What really moves the needle is everybody has to come in with their perspective and to advocate for what they think is the next step and what should happen and what's important and to push back on this notion that their experience is the only experience or the normative experience and their leadership is the only leadership and the right leadership. So um, continuing to build your skill set is what I would say to um, every woman out there who's looking for a way in and 
don't be afraid to take up space. So if you feel like there was an imbalance with the AIDS 2020 um, structure, absolutely let that be known. Absolutely give that feedback. Um, and when it's time to plan the next one, um, you know, let's have the proactive conversation. Okay, what, where are the women going to be? How are we going to make sure that women's needs are centered? Let's think about what we learned from the last time and make sure that we're getting involved early and often in terms of shaping the agenda and shaping the conversation. Um, like sometimes that seems so like unattainable. Like, thank you for affirming it. Like sociology was my minor in college. <laughs> like, I just love this whole thinking. But sometimes, you know, you feel like you're just one of those people and you don't really have a voice. Um, so being that we do have some women researchers out there who, you know, are doing the work for us. And I'm so grateful for all of them. Do you think that that having women in the field, do you think that kind of helps shape? you know, what we're actually researching? Definitely. I, I definitely think it makes a, makes an impact. Um, and I also think that what we're able to do is um, open up doors for each other. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think is so great about the, the Well Project is that um, the Well Project is always thinking about how do we open up doors for other women? And you hear that in the, in the conversation. So, you know, I'll give you an example. So the amazing, fantastic Gina Brown, um, who all of us know and love, um, social worker in um, Louisiana, um, we're working on a project together. And, you know, we're trying to think about speakers. And of course, she's an amazing speaker. So her name comes up. And, you know, Gina said, well, actually, you know, part of my role is to make room for the next woman. So let me give you some names of some other women who could do this just as well, if not better. Names that you might not have heard of, names that may not be in the room right now, names that, you know, don't always get brought up, but that nevertheless have a lot to offer. So um, that is such a good example of what we all need to be doing for each other, right? So when we think about, you know, who's gonna be the speaker or who's gonna help organize this event, trying to think about a broader community of, of people um, that can be brought into the discussion. And with being in the room, with those experiences, you get better and better. So I know that it can be very intimidating. I know that it can be very scary, but it's the kind of thing where practice makes perfect. The better you get at it, the more comfortable you are. So, you know, when I'm doing a speaking event and, you know, something that may feel very, very intimidating um, because I've done it so many times and forced myself to like, okay, just walk through the discomfort and get this done because this is important. The, the stronger you get at doing it and you build your skill set and you observe things and you learn things and you say, okay, this time I want to do it differently than last time. And I learned something and I didn't have a great experience. So I'm going to take something from that as opposed to giving up. So all of that is part of the process. And I think the biggest difference often is men and specifically white men never feel any shame about going back and trying again. Even if they mess up, even if they stumble, even if they don't feel comfortable because the entire society is organized 
around being patient with them and allowing them to keep trying things out <laughs> until they, you know, until they're able to do what they want to do. Unfortunately, society often doesn't give us that much leeway, but we have to take it and we have to demand it. And um, I think that, that, you know, getting comfortable with, I'm going to work, walk through the fire and use this as a learning experience, just like they do. Um, because I'm trying to build my skills too, I think is a, a space that we have to claim. Yes. You're watching that happen right now. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and you're doing amazing. Doing amazing. Thank you. So this is my last question for you. So what is the number one thing you think we need to do to address the disproportionate effect of HIV among Black women? I think it's, the key is resources and opportunities. I think that's what it boils down to. I think that um, when I um, think about all of the women that I've talked to, what I see is potential squashed, um, often at very young ages, through traumatic experiences. And the resources not being there um, to help them heal. And the opportunities not being there for them to grow up in a more protective and protected environment. So I think that part of what we need to do is to think about how do we make sure that women and girls have the resources and the opportunities to be able to move through the world safely and in a way that um, where they are, are protected and have physical, emotional, spiritual, and economic safety. Um, I think that is the absolute key. And um, yes, resources down the road matter in terms of access to healthcare, access to, you know, we focus on access to prevention, access to treatment. But what I think is the most important thing we need to do is to think about how do we make sure that our physical, spiritual, social, and economic lives are protected through resources and opportunities so that we can thrive in the way that we were put on this earth to thrive. I agree. <laughs> I, um, this is just something a little extra, but in, you know, talking to so many other women who HIV may not even be, you know, what they're dealing with, but just, so much of our trauma that we experienced in our childhood is it like parallel like yo you too you too and yeah. we just were talking about it and and speaking i am one of those privileged ones and it's a shame that i have to feel that way but i get to go to therapy and i get to unpack all of this stuff in therapy yeah. and realizing that hiv was really like a symptom it was like all this other stuff up underneath of what happened, but HIV is one of the things that you can just see. And if some of those things had been addressed earlier in my life, I may not be speaking from this standpoint right now. So yeah. thank you once again for being able to put that into the words that I may not be able to grab. Yeah. Oh, you are so welcome. Yeah. And it goes back to that woman I interviewed in Boston where I realized like, oh, what she's getting is a support system. 
That's what's different from the other women I'm talking to. She's got this support system within the HIV community. And then, you know, my whole book kind of unpacks what is that support system and, and what is it doing? Because what is the name of your book? I'm sorry. Oh, let me let me say, share. It's called <laughs> Remaking a Life, How Women Living with HIV Confront Inequality. And um, it documents women's stories from what I call dying from to living with to thriving despite HIV. But we also know, just as you said, Cece, it's dying from to living with to thriving despite a whole host of issues, HIV just being one of them. And I call them injuries of inequality. And um, basically the book follows a group of women along their journey and their process of, you know, moving from dying from to living with to thriving despite. So you, you hear about the trauma, but you also hear about how did they get to a place where they could be leaders in their community and HIV activists and, you know, um, have wonderful relationships, um, intimate relationships, relationships with their families. And that piece in the middle of like, how did it take, what did it take to help them get there is really about a conversation about the HIV safety net and what it has produced and the space it has created for women to be able to um, work through that trauma that you talk about and unpack it and get access to therapy and get access to healthcare and get networks with other women who have had the same experiences and to get leadership experiences and to have someone look at them in all of their beauty and say, you are so talented and you can be doing this. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this kind of career and this kind of leadership and coming to this kind of meeting and helping us guide policy and services. And what the HIV community does very well is to help people develop that. And I look at the stories of the women, but then I also look at how did this infrastructure come to be? And who were the, who, who are some of the people? There were so many, I could have written like volumes about all the people who've been involved in building the HIV safety net. But what were some of the really interesting moments where this infrastructure, this support system, this community um, got built. So that's what the book is about. And it, it, the, the, most op the opening line of the book is very provocative and it's um, deliberately so. And it's from a woman named Dawn who said to me, if it weren't for HIV, I'd probably be dead. Yeah. And for all of the stigma of HIV, it's a jarring statement. Like, what did you say? What do you think of that statement, CC? If it weren't for HIV, I'd probably be dead. That was literally my thought as we were speaking about the HIV safety net. Like, I think sometimes I don't have to worry about my medical care, and it makes me like want to put tears in my eyes because they take care of me. Like, I don't have to if there if it's not like regular medical that I qualify for. My state has it to where there are programs in place that I don't have to worry about if I would get my medicine or not. This hasn't always been my story because I've lived in other places where they didn't take care of us so much but there are so many resources like I have the case manager they help me you know with supplies for my son around school time like I know that I can always call somebody and get help in any facet of my life and it's only because of my HIV status mm -hmm. and I've been positive so like all of my adulthood so I don't know I can't even picture a life without having those resources in place 
And yes, it's only for HIV. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just, so it's this interesting puzzle. So one of the things that the book looks at is why does it take an HIV diagnosis to get access to that level of support? Like, why can't we have that for, for everybody? So really what I'm trying to do is use the HIV example as an example, as a model of this is what could be happening in other realms because look how impactful it is. Look how much of a difference it makes. And so much of your story is, you know, getting the access to the services to be able to, you know, have the security that you need, but then being able to turn that around and then become a leader, right? And to be able to contribute because you're not worried about where your kid is going to get their school supplies from because you're not worried about where your next meal is coming from or where your healthcare is going to come from. So that frees up the energy to focus on policy or helping other women, mentoring, being involved with the well project and all of the people that we're going to touch through this conversation. The HIV safety net makes it possible for you to be able to move your talents and your skills into something like this conversation that we're having right now that's going to touch so many lives. So um, the line, if it weren't for HIV, I'd probably be dead. She's not saying this is awesome to have HIV. What she's saying is if it weren't for the HIV community, I'd probably be dead. So my book looks at where did that community come from and what are women's experiences within it? And then how do they become leaders? within that network well once again thank you for it thank you thank you and this has just been such an honor for me so i appreciate it thank you very much thank you for listening to the first episode of the well projects leadership exchange podcast you can watch and listen to more episodes on our website www.thewellproject.org backslash exchange. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on social media and don't forget to share.